Please remain standing as we read together our scripture reading. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 17. I'll read the second part of our passage when I get to it in the sermon. This is God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the two sharp-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Will you pray with me? Father, we come this morning and ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to hear and understand and heed and obey your word. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. I'm not bold enough to do what Brian does. So I cheated and wrote everything on the board at the front end. <laughs> So I'm going to leave it right here, and you're going to say, what on earth is that? This is an overview, I think, of the seven letters that we are in the middle of looking at, okay? They go to the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I'll say this, that the letters together are greater than the sum of their parts, they have a significance that's greater than the sum of their parts. Brian pointed out that this is a circular letter, and so geographically, they go around a, a route, a trade route, and so the letter would have been taken along that route. There's a geographical order, but there's also somewhat of a thematic order. For example, the first, the third, the fifth, and the seventh letters, Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis, and Laodicea, all four of those letters contain a command to repent. And, and when Christ gives to those churches a commendation and then a critique or uh, a, an exhortation, an observation and an exhortation, the exhortation is the larger part. Those four churches are called to repent. The second and the sixth church sort of stand out. Uh, they're not perfect but their commendation is much greater, and neither the church in Smyrna nor Philadelphia is issued a call to repent. And so the first, second, third letters sort of create this little triad, and the fourth and fifth, uh, the fifth, sixth, and seventh letters sort of also create a little triad. And then in the middle of these seven letters is this letter to Thyatira. And in the middle of the letter to Thyatira, we're going to see, I believe, verse 23 stands out in the midst of the entirety of this section. The reason it stands out is it explicitly says something to all the churches. 
It's the only time that phrase, to all the churches, appears in any of the seven letters. And so I just wanted to give you sort of a a high-level view. Today we're going to look at the letters to Pergamum and the letter to Thyatira. Pergamum, Pliny, called this city the most impressive in all of Asia. It was built on an acropolis with an elevated city with these steep sides to it. The word Pergamum means citadel. And it boasted a library of some 200,000 plus volumes, second only to the library in Alexandria, North Africa. It housed the temple of a great altar of Zeus at the highest point of the city. It was the worship center for four of the pagan cults of the day, Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepios. Asclepios, you may or may not know, but his uh, symbol uh, was the serpent, which we use even to this day in the medical field, if you've seen the, the symbol for medicine. So that was because this was a place of healing. This was a healing center. And it was the center of Rome's world in minor, Asia Minor. It housed the garrison for the Roman army. And that's probably why Christ chose to use from the vision of chapter 1 why he chose to use the imagery of this letter being from him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Uh, Because the people who lived in Pergamum felt and saw daily the sword of Rome in their very city. He commends this church. He says this in the commendation. Christ says, I know where you live. Such comforting words. God knows your circumstances. He he knows your trials. He knows the challenges of uh, your work situation. He knows the challenges of the raising children in the world today. He, He knows the address where you live that comes with all of those difficulties in this fallen world. For the church in Pergamum, their address was a hard one. I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne. In fact, at the end of uh, the commendation, he says, you live where Satan lives. How, how would you like that for an address? You, you live, I know, you live right where Satan lives. Isn't it comforting to know that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet stands without sin? To live at, as one author said, to live at hell's headquarters. And and this is probably a reference to the oldest of the temples in all of Asia Minor where emperor worship was required. It was built there by Augustus in 29 AD. and, And this church in Pergamum had remained faithful to the Lord even to the point of death. And one of those who had died because of their faith, is even named in the letter, Antipas. And the words spoken about him are are beautiful because he is called a faithful witness. The other person in the book of Revelation who is called a faithful witness is back in chapter 1, verse 5, and it's Jesus Christ himself. So the very same faithful servant declaration given 
by Christ of who he is is laid also upon Antipas. Nevertheless, this church has some challenges and faults. First of all, they hold to the teaching of Balaam. And Balaam, you have to go back and read in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 to 24, uh, the famous passage where, where God uh, speaks through a donkey. Uh, but the point, that's not the point that is being drawn out here for us. The point drawn out here is actually found in Numbers 25, which is where Balaam misleads Israel into idolatry and immorality, that he deceives them. In fact, Numbers 31, 16 later, sort of reporting on what happened and the danger says this, Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. Treacherously. I believe it was R.C. Sproul that called sin cosmic treason. And that, that Balaam had misled the people of God into cosmic treason against their Lord. And not only do we see here the teachings of Balaam, but we also see the, that they also hold some of them to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We've met them before in Ephesus in the first letter. And so I won't go into that much, but there is one interesting contrast or, or, or fact that, that just sort of stands out when you read the letter to Pergamum and compare it to the letter in Ephesus. And that is in the letter to the Ephesians, they are... They are um, exhorted because they hold to the works of the Nicolaitans. And here, Pergamum, we hear that it is the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And, and what you can draw from that is just this inference that, that right doctrine leads to right living and wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. That holding to the wrong teachings of the Nicolaitans leads to wrong living in the church at Pergamum. And the wrong living that was evidenced at Ephesus was because of the wrong teachings that they held to. Those will always go together. And so the exhortation regarding Balaam and the Nicolaitans is one and the same thing. James, in his letter to the churches in chapter 4, verse 4, sort of captures the idea this way. He says that to be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. And the church in Pergamum had become friends, or some of them had become friends of the world. And yet, don't forget the fact that it wasn't just the, the, those who held to the teachings of Balaam and those who held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans that was going on in the church there. Behind the scenes was the evil one. This was where Satan lived. And, uh, and we need to be reminded of that, don't we? That our enemies and the things that come up and, and uh, challenge our faith in Christ, they're not, they're not flesh and blood things. They may be embodied in people and, and false teachings that can be labeled as the teachings of someone. But at the end of the day, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, is it? It's against rulers and authorities and causing powers that rail over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Paul would say in Ephesians 6. And so he exhorts them to repent. To repent. And then he gives a promise to those that do. Uh, and he describes in that promise two incredible gifts. He says, first of all, that you would be given the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? 
We read about it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. Having, and, and here it's talking about the tabernacle. And it says, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. And so then it's going to say what's inside the ark. In which was a golden urn holding the manna. And Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. These three items placed into the ark. Now, you may recall that manna was the miraculous food that God provided during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness of His people, right? It would, it would show up daily, and they were instructed to go out and gather it and then eat it for the day. But, but the thing that stands out about it is it never lasted. You, you couldn't go out and collect two days of it and put some in the pantry, you couldn't refrigerate it. It had a used-by date of one day. It, it came every day, but only for the day. In that sense, it sort of parallels the, the concept in the Old Covenant of the sacrifices, right? The sacrifices were to be offered, but, but they never lasted. They had to be offered continually all the time as a provision for the people's sin. And here we see another case where every day it had to be offered by God, had to give His people food to sustain them. And so it's interesting, though, that there's one piece or one portion of manna that actually is made to last forever. And it's put aside in the ark, and unlike all the other manna that, that becomes corrupted, it remains incorruptible. The only problem is it's in the ark of the covenant and it's inaccessible to the people of God. And you see here sort of a picture of, of their dependence and they're looking forward to something that they are going to partake of that like the manna is going to sustain them. It's Christ. The true bread that comes from heaven. In our call to worship today, that's what we saw. Where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the manna that came down from heaven. And, and not the corruptible kind that hit the ground and was good for one day, but rather, he says, I'm the kind like that hidden in the ark that you never had access to before. I'm the bread of life that if you will by faith feed on me, you will never thirst and you will never hunger. And so Christ here is saying he's giving us himself. That's the promise. Horatius Boner wrote this, This hidden manna is the special food of the redeemed, the nourishment of the new and glorified life for both body and soul. It is set down on the great banquet table in the high banquet hall. That's the wedding supper of the Lamb he's picturing there. As it was in the upper room in Jerusalem when Jesus said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. In other words, this is the bread that we will partake of in heaven one day that will sustain us for eternity. And it's also the bread that gets presented to us as a sign in this table that we partake of. It's Christ, the bread of life. The second gift is a white stone. A white stone. 
And there's a lot of theories on this. Some say it's a token of acquittal for a court hearing. Some say it's the pledge of an athlete who wins at the games because you didn't want to carry around all the winnings, so you had to present the stone to get the winnings. Some say it's an invitation to an event. Others relate it to the white marble that was prevalent in the city of Pergamum. But each of those explanations, I, I think, sort of glosses over the other parts that we're told here where it's a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Names in Scripture were important because they were tied to identities. When God renamed someone, it was significant because He was changing by His grace who they were. He changed Abram to Abraham a father of many. He, he changed Simon uh, to Peter, an unstable man to a rock. He changed Saul to Paul, a murderer to one who would proclaim the life-giving gospel in Christ. And each of those represents a, a, radically, a radical change built on the grace of God. I wonder... And I don't think we can say, but I, I wonder if the new stone is the glorified me in heaven. Have you ever thought about what you're going to be like in heaven when you are glorified and without sin? I know as I've thought about that, initially my thought was that the things that came to my mind were things that were much closer to who I am today than I would hold today. It's sort of like my initial thinking on this was like, well, it's like a rock tumbler. You put the imperfect, jagged rock in there, and you roll it around long enough, and, and you pull it out, and it's this beautiful rock. But it's very similar to the rock you put in, right? You, you don't open the rock tumbler and say, what is this? I put rocks in here, and this came out. You expect that. And that's how I kind of used to think about it. But now I wonder if it's not going to be something where I wouldn't even recognize myself today if I suddenly walked in the back doors in the state that Christ has prepared for me and what He will make me when I see Him and are made like Him. It's much greater of a difference. And I wonder if that's what the new stone is. Peter talks of us as living stones, does he not? That God builds His church out of living stones. And I would imagine that the, the stone you're looking at up here this morning is kind of like an imperfect brick. But the stone that is going to be built into whatever God is creating in heaven is going to be far more glorious, white, like snow. And I wonder if that's what we're getting at here. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. In other words, if, if I could see myself as what Christ has in store for me, walk through the back door this morning and down the center aisle, what Lewis is saying is I would be tempted to worship that. There's such a contrast. Let's look at the church in Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance 
and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira. It was the city of Lydia. Lydia, whom Paul met in Philippi and was the first convert in Europe. It's probably the least significant of all seven of the cities. It was a nothing town. There were bigger towns that, that John could have written about, or Jesus could have told John to write to this church. There's churches like the one in Colossae or Hierapolis, both larger. So this insignificant church gets the longest letter. It's from Christ who identifies himself using these words, the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. It's the only usage of the title Son of God in the book of Revelation. It, and it goes back to the vision in chapter 1, but if you go back to the vision in chapter 1 and look at the verse there, it actually says the Son of Man who has eyes like this and who has feet like this. But here it's the Son of God. A subtle but maybe significant shift. It's speaking here of the omniscience and omnipresence of Christ. He's everywhere and He sees all things. His eyes like blazing fire. And His feet, omnipotent. They're immovable. Immutable. The word used here for burnished bronze is actually not a common word. It's, it's not the usual word. It's not the word used in chapter 1. It's, it's changed, and, it, and it's probably changed to represent a bronze that was made in Thyatira. The commendation here is this. I know your deeds. I know your deeds, that they are more than you did at first. The opposite of the church in Ephesus Right? The church in Ephesus had lost its first love. This church was doing more than it had done at the front end. And then it gives these, I'll call them marks of the church. When I say the phrase marks of the church, uh, many of us gravitate immediately to, to the things that are historically called the marks of a true church. The preaching of the word, 
the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. And that you find those things and you see those things, that's a church. Some of those, most of those, you can find on the website. If, in other words, if you were looking for a true church to be a part of, you could have checked the website out before coming here this morning to Mercy, and you could have said, do they preach the Word? And you could have looked at past bulletins and said, do they practice the sacraments? You might have had a little harder time on the discipline part, at least the positive part, you'd be like, are they teaching the gospel? Yes. And are they disciplining sin? And if you uh, are part of the church, long, if you recognize we take sin seriously at Mercy, we just don't sweep things under the rug. And those are the marks of a church outwardly, but these things listed here are marks of the church inwardly that are much harder to read and measure. Love, faith, service, and perseverance. They exist here. Those of us who come and are part of mercy know that. We've experienced them, but you'd have to be a part of us for a while to, to, to read them, wouldn't you? They're more the internal marks of a church which sometimes get neglected because of the focus heavily on those outward ones that are easier to read. But he says, I know this about you. You have more love now than you did at first. You have more faith now than you did at first. You have more service now than you did at first. You have more perseverance now than you did at first. In other words, there's growth in this church. And, and it's not necessarily numerical growth, but there's spiritual growth. The words come to mind of John 15, verse 2, where Jesus says, Every branch that, doesn't bear, that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. And I think that's what happens at the church in Thyatira. They are bearing fruit, but Christ, there's going to be a pruning that they might be more fruitful. Again, it's not a perfect church, right? He has this against them, Jezebel. Jezebel historically was the arch nemesis of the prophet Elijah. She was the conniving wife of King Ahab. But she wasn't there, rather somebody that was like her. A, a, a woman like Jezebel was present in this church and misleading it. A real woman, but, may, but a symbolic name. And God says he will strike her down. Notice the influence. She has, well, she has an effect on the church in two ways. Those committing adultery with her, the idea there is influence, and those who are her children. In other words, she's influencing the church and she's spreading error in the church. And again, we see immorality and idolatry. But the, so what was the problem then? What was the nature of the problem in Thyatira? It was the opposite of what was happening in Ephesus. In Ephesus, you may recall, we had truth, but without love. We had a church that was standing for the truth of the gospel, but they had lost their first love. And Brian rightly pointed out that they had just lost their love for the lost in the world. I think we'll see that's exactly what, what was on the heart of Christ here when we get to the promise connected to this church. But the problem in Thyatira was this. They had love, but without truth. They had love, but without truth the opposite error. We need to be reminded often of what Paul would write to the Galatian church when he would say that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Right teaching and right living. 
Verse 23, though, I think is critical. Look at that. I think this is the hinge verse of the seven letters. He says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That's sort of a summary statement of all seven letters, isn't it? It's a quote of Jeremiah 17.10, that God alone searches heart and mind. He knows everything, and he rewards us according to what we have done. The reminder here is that we are justified by faith, but we're judged by works. That for those of us who are by faith in Christ, the works of Christ, the deeds of Christ become ours. They are counted to us as righteousness. But if we're not in Christ, then we stand alone on a day when God will come and rightly judge, and we will be judged by our deeds. And so we have a choice to either be in Christ or to stand on our own. And that's really the gospel. Now, there were some in Thyatira who held to these false teachings, but there were others who didn't. And that's the exhortation here is hold on to the teachings that you have. Don't go for the so-called deep secrets. What's this talking about? Well, the likeliness in, in Thyatira was that there was sort of a, a teaching going around of Jezebel that said, yes, what you believe is great, but there's something more, and here's how you get to it. And the practice would be to have these temples where there would be these orgies, and in the middle of this ecstasy, that's this deep knowledge. That's this secret knowledge that you're supposed to seek after. That's, that's where you're going to find the real life. In other words, to put it in a very simple phrase, it's a Jesus plus something. Jesus plus. And Jesus plus something equals nothing. Peter captures this, this idea well. Second Peter chapter 2, he says, they promised them freedom. In other words, Jezebel's promised freedom, but they themselves are enslaved to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, they, they have some knowledge of Christ. But then they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. There's a warning there about coming to a church like Mercy and, and knowing enough about God to sort of feel comforted by it, but not buying in and giving yourself to Christ. And that opens you up, as in the case of Thyatira, to the Jezebels that would come along and say, well, you can have Jesus and this. And the reality is you can't. You can't serve Christ and anything else. Fill in the blank. To those who overcome, what will he give? Again, he gives himself. He promises himself that you will reign with him. You will have the authority that he has, and he will give the morning star. Uh, real quickly, that's a beautiful picture. The morning star was Venus. And Venus would rise in the morning when darkness was giving way to dawn. 
And that's the picture here that Jesus is leaving the church in Thyatira. Though you live in darkness, hold on to Christ because the dawn is coming when he will return and he will take his to be with him. And so again, we see the gift is given as Christ. Notice the words there, you have received authority from my Father. They echo the words of Jesus uh, on the mountain in Galilee when he gave the great commission to his disciples. And he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That, that great commission where he says, all authority has been given to me is echoed here where he says, just as I've received authority from my Father, you too have. And implicit in those words is, is a call to the people of God, those who know Christ, to go and make disciples, to proclaim the good news of Christ, and to teach all that he has commanded. Let us pray. Father, Thank you for these letters. Thank you for their commendation and their comfort and their encouragements. Thank you for their exhortations and admonitions, for their corrections and the warnings. Oh, Father, that you would give us ears to hear what you say to your church. And Father, may we not sit under any of these letters as we hear them and think, wow, uh, I know a church that needs to hear that, or, or wow, I know a person who needs to hear that. But may it be us that hears it. May we be those who repent of our sin and turn to Christ. May we be those who are conquerors in Christ. Help us to be faithful. Help us to feed upon Christ and Him alone. May we be filled with the hope of what one day you will do with us and the glory that will be ours in that eternal state. And also, Father, may we be faithful in the command to go, uh, to make disciples that would follow Christ. We ask these things in His name and for His glory. Amen.